Welcome, everybody, uh, into Scout's Eye on College Football. I am Chris Landry, and we're going to take a look at the Arizona State football program and where they go from here after the failed um, experiment with Perm Edwards. Uh, I want to remind you that we go into details like this. Uh, my background as a now 40-year NFL scout, uh, NFL coach, college uh, coach, and recruiting coordinator prior to my NFL days. I serve as a coaching search consultant, uh, uh, coaching and scouting consultant to college and NFL teams. So this is kind of in my wheelhouse of what I do and evaluate programs and taking a look at things. So we're going to get into it a little bit, a reminder that we cover a lot of this stuff in more great detail at LandryFootball.com. I've got uh, a, about a 5,000 uh, word uh, information that the staff has put together of my information that I have about Arizona State that we've put for you. So if you want more detail than we're able to get into today, head on over to LandryFootball.com. Take advantage of the football season sale today as we've got openings. We've got a Georgia Tech opening. Uh, we're going to have an Auburn opening this year. We're, we're going to break all of those down in our own unique way. In order to know where the program at Arizona State is now, let's go back a little bit. I like to do this in pretty much any of that. We did this with Nebraska recently. For those of you who heard that podcast, going to what made Nebraska great, how they built their program, and then kind of what's happened since then. Let's let's go back into Arizona State. They are a program that is considered to be a, a budding giant, maybe is too strong a word, but a budding program. Why? It's located in a place, much like Florida is a place that people gravitated to for climate, you know, warm weather. Arizona was that place out west. If you didn't want to deal with California, you, you, Arizona was a place that was very popular. And in Arizona, the Phoenix Tempe area was the most popular. Heck, when you draw an NFL team there, that says a lot. So you've got an NFL team there. You've got a stadium, which is where obviously the Cardinals played when they moved there uh, before they built their, their new stadium. So you've got that. It is, uh, if you've not been on that uh, campus, it is beautiful. It's one of the, uh, one of the elite, let's just say, uh, uh, in terms of uh, good looking co-eds on campus. It's, it, and as a party school, it's one of the best there. So it's very attractive for young people, players, as the population has grown in Arizona. Again, not as much as Florida has, but with the population boom, the high school football has gotten better in that area uh, because you got more people going in there. So you you see a better quality of football in the state than you ever did. If you look at the history of the program, it um, was one that in the early days, in the early history, they played in what was called the Border Conference. And then they gradually worked their way up into uh, the WAC. And that's where they played most of their, uh, they started to develop. And more on that in a second. But in the late 60s, all the way to 1977, late 70s, they were in the WAC. They went into um, the, uh, the, the Pac-12 uh, in 1978. Arizona and Arizona State was added, and the Pac-8 became the Pac-10. Um, since now the, the Pac-12, as we know, and losing uh, USC and UCLA in the near future. 
But when you look at the program, it was kind of considered a program that had potential even way back in the early history. Um, you know, uh, Clyde Smith took over the, the Arizona State program in the, in the 50s um, and, and began to kind of build something, not a lot of wins. But then in 55, Arizona State plucked a really good assistant coach out of Michigan State uh, under Duffrey Doherty's program. Guy by the name of Dan Devine. You've certainly heard of him. Legendary Notre Dame coach, Green Bay Packer coach. He accepted the head coaching position, and he brought with him as his top assistant a guy by the name of Frank Cush. And, of course, Frank Cush is the guy that's known more for Arizona State than anybody in their history. Uh, but during the three years that Devine was there, he compiled a 27-3-1 record including a 10 and 0 mark in his final campaign. Um, and then obviously what happened at Arizona state with his success, Dan Devine went on to Missouri. Okay. So, you know, he, he, he looked at, at that and, and took the job, built it into something good. But even back then it was okay. Where can we, go to something that well Missouri was a more prominent program in that time but then Frank Cush comes in and he was promoted to the position at Arizona State and he held it for 22 years so that's the reason why he's kind of considered the father of the program now he's known as the guy that ended up coaching in the NFL as well and with the Baltimore Colts it was known as a guy back in the day was uh, demanding physically demanding would be an understatement, would not be a guy that would, uh, you know, be the type of guy that people would look at fondly today. Very physical, uh, very challenging. He had uh, he had long, hard, I mean, long and hard practice in the desert heat. Uh, that just doesn't happen today. Um, he had he was one of the founders of a drill called a bull in the ring, whereby you would have the players form a circle. He put a player in the middle. Most often a player he felt needed motivation and toughness. He called out a uniform number and blew the whistle and that player would charge the player in the middle and the two would engage in contact until Cush blew the whistle. It was just a toughness. It wasn't technique. It was just that it was whoever gave the best effort, would go back to the circle while the player dogging it would stay in until Cush decided he could quit. Um, they had a great player. You probably are familiar with him. Those of you that follow the NFL and follow maybe the Houston Oilers, Curly Culp, the former Arizona State player. Um, in one of these bull in the ring drills, Curly Culp broke a teammate's face mask during one of these drills. Uh, another one of these drills was, was, um, would have a center, could have a quarterback, could have a running back, whoever he wanted. And it was a different world, a different time. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was called, uh, there was a hill that was near the practice facility called Mount Cush. And it was a steep hill and very hilly and it, near the, the, the practice facility. And it was called Camp Tontezuma near Payson. And they had large rocks and cacti and no shade and, you were in the sun, and if they needed discipline, he would have them run up that hill on numerous times. And, um, you know, during his career, he had a 176-54-1 record, only one losing season in his first 11 years. 
He captured two conference titles, finished runner-up five times. Um, that led to him accepting the head coaching job at the University of Pittsburgh in 69. However, five days later, he had a change of heart and returned to Arizona State. And this uh, led to Johnny Majors taking the job. So it's kind of interesting, you know, taking a job and in, in, in backing out of it is something that's happened from time to time. But this was in an area of not the information age. But he was going to head to Pittsburgh, which was Pittsburgh's a legendary program going back into the 30s, 40s, and, and even 50s. But then obviously most recently success in the 70s and early 80s under uh, Johnny Majors and uh, Jackie Sherrill. But it was Frank Cush that was he literally accepted the job. I remember it was uh, early January, like January 4th or 5th, 1969. He accepted the pit job and then decided to stay at Arizona State. Then he would begin a, a, an era which had consecutive WAC championships. Um, they won 50 of 56 games from 69 to 73. They won the 1970 Peach Bowl, and they won the, – the Fiesta Bowl was formed for Arizona State. It was a way that said, this team is really good, and there, we need to have a bowl game to go – because back then you didn't have all these bowl games. In 1974 – I mean, in uh, – in 1974, the team dropped to seven and four, but bounced back on track, and they went 12 and 0 the following year, and uh, capping a thrilling 17-14 victory over Nebraska in the Fiesta Bowl. Um, and in fact, uh, Danny Cush, uh, Frank's son, kicked three field goals in that game and had the game winner. So it was a down year in '76, and the team fell to four and seven, and, um, and then they went to nine and three. And again, they were kind of the host team of the Fiesta Bowl, and uh, they had um, they lost in '78 to Penn State in, in that game. Uh, they finished uh, nine and three. Defeated Rutgers in the Garden City Bowl. Um, you know, um, so there's there's a, you had a couple of lawsuits with players. The back on the mistreatment days. It was a it was a very tumultuous time, but a very successful tenure in an era where you can be real physical. On October of 79, he was fired um, because of there was a former punter at Arizona State named Kevin Rutledge, <clears throat> who threw, uh, threw out a, a $1.1 million lawsuit against the school, accusing Cush and his staff of mental and physical harassment. And the, the charge was that Cush punched him in the mouth after a bad punt in an October 1978 game against Washington. Well, um, it, it turned ugly, um, and there was an ugly situation because this kid, Rutledge's dad, um, was in the insurance business, and there were some overzealous fans. Yeah, they were all of that overzealous fans, not just in the Deep South, but in other places. Mysteriously, Rutledge's dad's insurance business mysteriously caught on fire. And there were two death threats. And so it really led to an investigation, which apparently, allegedly, Frank Cush began to interfere with the school's internal investigation. And he ultimately was fired on October, mid-October 1979. And uh, the athletic director at the time, Fred Miller, uh, decided to make the move. A lot of pressure, a lot of internal pressure about uh, how things were going. But 
look, the, the, you're talking about some of the players that played under Frank Cush. I just told you the records. Charlie Taylor, Curly Culp, I mentioned, Danny White, the great punter and backup quarterback and starting quarterback eventually for the Dallas Cowboys. Benny Malone, remember the great running back of the Dolphins. Mike Haynes, one of the absolute best corners of all time. John Jefferson, Steve Holden, great, great players. Um, you know, uh, Reggie Jackson actually played football a year for Frank Cush. He, he didn't like that too much and decided to stick with the uh, with uh, with baseball, Daryl Rogers replaced Frank Cush um, and led the Sun Devils to a 37 and I think 18 and one record. Uh, the best season came in 82, a 10 and two season, a Fiesta Bowl, and the number six ranking. And um, then, based on that, Rogers accepted an offer to become a head coach at the Detroit Lions. Then that's when they brought in John Cooper to Arizona State. John Cooper had been successful as Tulsa's head coach, and he got hired to come to Arizona State. And his teams played in three consecutive bowl games, 87 Rose Bowl uh, during his uh, three-year tenure there. And, and he was just 0-2-1 against Arizona, though. He then parlayed that job to be the head coach at Ohio State. Many of you may remember the name John uh, Cooper from that. So the 86 team won the, the school's first Pac-10 championship. Uh, less than 10 years that they've been uh, invited into the league. And then they went on to defeat Michigan in the 87 Rose Bowl. Larry Marmee comes in. He was the defensive coordinator um, from, for uh, John Cooper. He gets promoted. Um, he was a really good coach, but probably not best qualified to lead a program uh, of this stature. And very mediocre a couple of years. Then they went and hired Bruce Snyder from Cal Berkeley. Bruce Snyder had done a really good job at Cal and left to become Arizona State's coach in 92 and 58 wins in nine years. And it's, you know, probably the best tenure at Arizona State since uh, Frank Cush was there. Um, had success going to, to Sun Bowl, more, more than 40 players uh, went into the NFL off of teams that he coached. He had that 96 squad that had finished 11 and one and won the Pac-12 title. They stunned the number one ranked Nebraska team and Nebraska was rolling then. And I remember watching that game vividly. It was in Tempe. It was late Saturday night and they pulled it off. It was uh, unbelievable. 97 Rose Bowl. They went on uh, victory of Ohio state. So, um, you know, it, it had the, um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. They won the Rose Bowl in 97, and, of course, they played uh, Ohio State, and they lost that game, but they came really close. They probably wouldn't want to share the title that year. Uh, they weren't able to get that done, um, but really good job, moved on. Um, Snyder stepped down after 2000. Dirk Cutter came in. He was the head coach at Boise State. Then <clears throat> he moved on. Um, Dennis Erickson came in, and – 07 to 11, uh, he left Idaho to take this job, and he began his track. And then, you know, Washington State, Oregon State, of course, he went on to Miami and then San Francisco and Seattle in the NFL. Uh, then they go into the Todd Graham era and 12 to 2017. Then they bring in Herm Edwards. So that is uh, a lot of details about the history of the program, which I like to bring out for 
the very reason of trying to give you an, an overview of kind of what the program has been, what their background is. Uh, <clears throat> there are different people with different age brackets that listen to shows like this. And so I never know if they know some of the things that took place. So in Arizona State, why is it still considered or has been considered really good job is because of the fact that it is in that area that area where you can recruit well and the population boom has helped it. And it is um, got a lot of resources. The facilities are phenomenal. Um, and so I think it's been kind of a sleeping giant type job. Now, it's changed now. It's changed because of the current state of the Pac-12. Where is the Pac-12? They're trying to fight for a TV deal. USC and UCLA are going to be gone. The Pac-12 is not going to be as strong. The TV money won't be as good. So I think that every school in the Pac-12 might be lessened. Now, does, where does Arizona State's future lie? Does it lie in the Pac-12? Could they potentially go somewhere else? I think those are things that are up in the air. But it's still an attractive job for the right guy. Now, let's get into where we are and why Herm really didn't work. I never was a big fan of Herm Edwards. I, I like him personally. I was around him a lot. He was a one-time scout in the NFL. Obviously, he was a really good player. Played at San Diego State and was a, was a hard, working, try-hard player uh, for Coach Vermeil. And, and a likable guy. I think people that saw him on TV, and I used to call him Coach Soundbite because he would people in the media and fans love the Soundbite guy. And he was great with the soundbites. He was never a great coach. Um, he was never really elite as a coordinator. He was a better position coach, but he was more of a leader type of guy, but never one of these guys that was a difference maker. Um, Ray Anderson gets the athletic director job, former agent, good close friend with Herm Edwards. They bring Herm in. Never thought it was good because – he didn't – He the guy never coached in college except back in his early days. I mean, eons ago, no concept of college football, has no connections with college football coaches, and it's, the staff he put together was weak. Oh, he had a few NFL guys, ex-guys, weak staff. Didn't know how to recruit, didn't know how to evaluate, didn't know the – to um, – to refer you to the, the post on LandryFootball.com that goes into details of how Herm didn't even bother to learn the NCAA rules, didn't listen to the people in the administration that knew the NCAA rules, didn't really care, wasn't really a football coach as you see a football coach. He was a figurehead guy. It was a, we're going to hire a guy, even the athletic director, didn't when he announced him, he announced him as the CEO of football operations. Like, here's the figurehead, and here's the guy you see on TV. The recruits are just going to come following, and we're going to hire, you know, um, uh, uh, somebody to come in. And you know, Antonio Pierce, who was a player, played at Arizona, ironically, and the, the rival school, who had no background in coaching. And this guy is going to be Herm's right hand man, recruiting coordinator assistant head coach and the guy that's basically making the decisions and he had no clue what he was doing. So it was a real disaster um, from the get-go. 
Paul, they had some success here and there, but it, not much of it. Uh, it was not a very good stand, no consistency, no ability to, to understand how to work recruiting, no real understanding how to develop players. It was all sizzle and no stick. And it was about the dumbest move you could make. And I know a lot of coaching moves take place, and they don't work. And you say, well, Chris, there are plenty more that work. Yes, but this is one in which even the success they had were happenstance. They just weren't very well coached. They just weren't very well prepared. They just weren't very well organized. They broke more rules, and this gets into the problem. I don't think they were trying to cheat. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They didn't know the rules, didn't understand the rules. Uh, they would, they hosted. Now, here's the thing: they hosted recruits during COVID. Well, they knew they were cheating then, because they at least understood that. Now, a lot of the rules, Herm didn't know. He didn't know what his coaches were doing. Again, Herm was there to take pictures, kiss babies. He wasn't even involved in any of this stuff. It was a complete joke he lost five assistants during the probe of the ncaa probe during that um there's a lot of problems that we don't know where the ncaa is going to take it we don't know herm's involvement because he wasn't really around or involved in a whole lot but he didn't know the rule he had a salary of 3.9 million he was responsible for it but he didn't really do anything and this is the fault of the administration to make a foolish decision. Herm never bothered to learn the NCAA bylaws. He was not an arrogant guy. He got along well with most of the people on campus because he's a good guy. He just, he wasn't going to buy NCAA rules. Again, never been around it, doesn't understand it. He didn't understand that you couldn't do things that you did that you were familiar with in the NFL. No concept, no idea about college football. Coaching an all-star game for TV, uh, a recruiting all-star game is not understanding college football. Uh, they hired people to specifically teach him the rules, make sure that he followed them, and they basically called it babysitting him. And, I mean, he would do things that were just blatantly illegal a, because he didn't know any better. He didn't pay any attention. They got one of the more experienced football operations guys in their program for a long time, Tim Cassidy. Long-time guy, Texas A&M. Um, the assistant deputy athletic director, Gene Boyd, and, and Tim tried to do everything they could to kind of baby Herm to let Herm, you can't do this. You can't do that. You know, 40-year guy that, that just, you know, they had no clue. Um, they would, uh, they basically said there were several people in the personnel department that Herm hired that knew less than he did. And so what you had was a situation where you said, okay, so Herm's the figurehead. He's going to hire all these guys that know the college game. No. He hired guys that didn't know, so those guys didn't know. So you didn't have a head coach who was 
detached from the actual operations, you had a whole staff of people that were committing the violations that didn't know, didn't care, because the head coach didn't know and didn't care. And it was a complete cluster where they couldn't even figure out where up was, whether up was up was down or down was up. So I, I just think that they didn't even, it is required to take a recruiting exam. They didn't even do that. They couldn't even know the basics of what you could and can't do. It was embarrassingly bad. We talked about it. Um, there's a lot of talk about how his influence and his impact over young guys and you know, young people. I don't doubt that for a minute. I think that he probably was good in that. He 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 brought, you know, uh, he could sit down with them. He would sit there and talk with their stories that parents would come to practice. And Herm would meet them and practice would be three periods, four periods in, and Herm's just still yucking it up with the parents. Great guy. The guy you'd like to have a beer with and talk life with. Herm was your guy. Meanwhile, he's he's right there outside of the gates of practice. And, you know, God bless him. Um, he's just, you know, it's just one of those type of guys, you know, who's always willing to to sign things and do things. It, it's it's great in that sense, but he didn't put a good staff together. He himself was not a really good coach. He was a figurehead. He didn't hire well enough, and they administratively didn't put the right people in place to handle the things that Herm couldn't do, and it was a problem. So, yes, there was some success in recruiting because they were able to, you know, uh, lure people in with the, you know, Herm and his personality, and they were able to do things that, quite frankly, that were against the rules. Now, I know people don't pay attention to the rules now, and things are different. You could pay them and all this kind of stuff. But it's more than that. It was other things that were taking place that were just simple, fundamental things that he didn't know. Um, you know, they got a Brandon Ayuk in, a Darian Butler in, a Jaden Daniels who's now at LSU. They brought some guys in. but And he kept around a few of the Ty Graham assistants for continuity, but he brought his own guys in. And Antonio Pierce was the biggest problem. Good guy. No experience. No experience in coaching at any level, and he just wasn't very good. Now, they they really tried to attack California recruiting, and I think they did some things. It worked in Florida, up the eastern seaboard. So they had some things that they tried to do. Um, but, you know, they just didn't have a clear understanding of how to build a program in college because they hadn't done it. And so um, – you know, there were times where people would go into Herm to ask head coaching questions. You know, things that only, and, and a couple of them are personal, I wouldn't want to say it, but they'd say, ask AP. That's Antonio Pierce. Whatever AP says, do what he says. Things that the buck stops here, the, the Herm wasn't even, he was completely detached from that. Uh, really, really worse than I thought when they hired him. I thought it would be a disaster. It was worse than that. Now, after going eight and five in year two, looked like they were going to continue because they got some players in there. Schedule worked out right. It was good. 
that Daniel's in for quarterback, the defense had some experience, then there's a lot of things. Because went into COVID, a lot of problems. They didn't handle things well. They broke rules. Now they're on the NCAA violations. Uh, you know, so, you know, um, it, it, you know, Herm was tired and aggravated during COVID, said we're not playing anymore. And that was, we all know what happened in COVID. But there's a lot of situations with their tight end coach, Andrew Brenneman, the defensive back coach, Chris Hawkins, receiver coach, Prentice Gill, Regina Jackson, the mother of Dayton Daniels, um, had some issues with the compliance that has led to problems. So there's a there's a boatload, a stack of issues, of violations that they're going to have to sort through, and we're going to see. Um, you know, just doing things like uh, entertaining certain family members of recruits at times that are just, I admit, are seemingly common sense things that you would do as a nice person. But there are certain things you can't do in recruiting. You can't just, you know, you, the old saying, you bump into somebody and that's a, it's a minor violation. Herm wouldn't bump into him. He would just have a come on over and come over the house for drinks. But you can't do that. And it's things like that. And then the overstepping of other things that he did, like, in COVID, he was meeting with recruits where you couldn't do it in a dead period. Well, they were meeting in a back alley hallway, in a, in a stairway. Well, they clearly knew they were violating the rules. So it was a combination of didn't know, combination of didn't want to know. And then we lead to this year where it looked like it was going to be bad. They were undisciplined, poorly coached. And then the embarrassing loss to a bad Eastern Michigan team. Um, you know, uh, give you another example that that I and I put in my post. Um, there was talk about a new transfer rule about a transfer window that was approved during the summer. I'm sure you guys have heard about it. Herm was asked about it, and it was like you were asking him to dissect how a rocket goes to the moon. He had no clue. He had no clue what was you know. He just. He didn't even know what they could or couldn't do in terms of practice. So it was it was a strange tenure through the process of being around them a little bit. It was really, really uh, weird. I had some people on the staff, um, you know, uh, some people that didn't stay. Billy Napier and Phil Bennett left. Um, and, you know, it, it just I, I think that. Uh, things just gradually was set up to fail because of no foundation of how to get it done. Look, it's still a really good job. Now, how good of a job it's going to be with the uncertain future of where this program is going to be in terms of what conference, Big Pac-12, what the Pac-12 is going to look like. Would they consider leaving somewhere? Somebody want them. Don't know any of those questions yet. But then what is going to be the NCAA fallout from this? I don't know. May not be much, maybe a lot. Don't know with the NCAA. So they paid a ton of money. It was, um, they owed Todd Graham $12 million. Then they hired Edwards. So there's a lot of money put into, a lot of money lost. There's a tremendous facility there, 120,000 square foot athletics building opened in 2019, a $300 million renovation to Sun Devil Stadium, 10,000 square foot weight room, a 2,000 square foot cardio frack, a, a big locker room, a huge training table, nutrition bar. And, you know, sports medicine area, really, really good. It's got all those things you'd want. Um, where do they go from here? All those things that I mentioned, 
about where is the program, where is the future is going to determine who might be interested. Um, you want to go with somebody with experience. I mean, I think you need to look at everything. Um, you, you've got to recruit well, you, but you've got to develop. Um, who's going to make the decision? I, With all due respect, I hope it's not Ray Anderson. I don't think he's a good fit. Who would be a good fit? I think there are a number of people. This is a place where you have to develop players, but I think you also have to open it up in recruiting. Do you want a guy that's really tough, hard-nosed coach, like a Kalani Sataki of BYU? Do you want a guy like a, a Bronco Mendenhall, who did a great job at Virginia and, and BYU for years? A lot of experience out West. He's a Utah guy. He's a defensive coach, um, but he's been flexible. Can you recruit well enough? Um, you know, a guy like Dan Mullins out there. Don't think he's a good enough recruiter. Of course, he spent time at Utah. Um Jonathan Smith, can you get him away from his alma mater, Oregon State? Money probably could do that. Good coach, develops players, and probably could recruit a little bit better. Uh, Kenny Dillingham, uh, Oregon's offensive coordinator, is an, is an Arizona State alum. Phoenix native. He worked on this staff from 14 to 15. Um, and he was an assistant at Chaparral High School in you know uh, 07 to 13. Been the offense coordinator at Memphis, Auburn, Florida State, uh, and now Oregon. Um, 32 years old, very young, bright guy, knows the school. Uh, you've got a Blake Anderson at Utah State, who's done a really good job, uh, obviously, at the Arkansas State, Utah State. Um, good coach. Jay Norvell is a former assistant there. I'm not sure that um, that Tom Herman would be a fit. He's been mentioned. Brent Brennan's done a good job at San Jose State. Uh, Brian Harson is, is he going to want to coach right away? Uh, once he gets let go at Auburn, is the timing going to be right? He's going to get a huge buyout, good developmental coach. Let's see where it'll go. So look, you got to understand, um, what Arizona state could be, um, very positive atmosphere game day, the whole, uh, tailgating very underrated. It's a party school. Kids have a lot of fun. Um, you know, it's uh, they, they watch a lot of games. Um, you know, in, in the tailgating, you watch a lot of the games in the SEC, whatever, during the day, and they'll, they'll play a lot of their games at night. A TV will dictate changes in some of that. But I think that the whole Sleeping Giant stuff needs to be refigured and re-understood. I think a good hire with a vision. What if they had hired Billy Napier? Because, I mean, I'm going to tell you, one of the things that I thought they could have done, now Billy Napier left to go to ULL. So they didn't get Billy Napier, who had been the ULL coach. They had get Billy Napier. But you wonder, what about Mike Norvell? Good job at Memphis. Good job at Florida State. Those two guys were on the staff. They didn't have the vision to see that. But those guys weren't really head coaches at the time. They were, I think, budding head coaches. But they went for the flash. They went for the sizzle, and they got a duck. Um, Dillingham, again, was an SEC offense coordinator at age 29. Um, I think maybe looking for somebody that's young, that's innovative, that's aggressive, is probably where they need to go. Getting a retread type of guy is not what is likely going to be a good fit. Um, I think he would be some guy that you'd have to strongly consider. It's 
you know, what guy, if you take a guy that is bright, up-and-coming, good coach that knows the area and would love the job, which, I mean, it's not just would you like the job, but do you love it? Do you believe in it? Is that someplace that you want to spend 20 years at if you could in this day and age and stuff to do? He's that type of guy. Do you, do they have the vision to see that in him or is he too young in their eyes? Um, you, I think, need to get somebody that can recruit and can develop and coach and can hire staff. And I think those things are really important. One of the things I'm going to do, and I'm going to do this on my Landry Football Podcast this week, is talk about when you hire a coach and that person is from one side of the ball or the other. He's the first-time coach. What is his ability to put together a staff and to attack the areas of which he's – because being a coordinator, if you're going to be a coordinator, is a full-time job. Being a head coach is a full-time job. You have to have people that can pick up the slack in both of those areas or at least one of those areas. And I think how to do that is something you've got to figure out. So, um, you know, I think I think getting guys to come to Arizona is big part about being able to recruit and being able to sell the program that you believe in. So that's now in this day and age, it's not just recruits, but transfer portal. And if you're going to run an exciting brand of ball, I think those things matter. So I think they've got another people that they should look at and consider, I think, a Sean Lewis at Kent State, a Charles Huff at Marshall, a Todd Munkin at, at Georgia, a Casey Dunn at Oklahoma State, um, or or some other possibilities. But Kenny Dillingham makes a lot of sense. So anyway, those are some thoughts about uh, in the history of Arizona State football that hopes give you an idea of where they have been, where they may go. But there's a lot of uncertainty around that program. Uh, I would ask you, if you would, to uh, sign up for the Landry Football Podcast Network. Uh, Subscribe, like, and share. We'll give you more of these type of evaluations of programs as these openings take place. I will have to find time to squeeze in a Georgia Tech one here within the next week, and we're going to have more openings. So I'm going to get them to you uh, as they come along as much as I can get them. And we'll do that if you subscribe, like, and share. Let us know how you like it. We know some of you have really uh, been – uh, positive about uh, these type of shows that are intriguing. So we'll uh, we'll bring them to you. Also, subscribe, like, and share the Off the Hook Sports YouTube channel. We'd appreciate you doing that. And again, even more detailed inside information, what's going on in coaching searches, as well as film room breakdowns on the college and program over at LandryFootball.com. So take advantage of our football season sale today or try it out for a month or six months, whatever is your pleasure. I appreciate you joining us. Good luck to Arizona State in their coaching search. I um, am curious to get together with them and uh, see what direction that they may want to go and go from there. So uh, we hope you enjoyed this. We appreciate you again if you subscribe, like, and share on the Landry Football Podcast Network. Take care, everybody.